Thanks for tuning in. A quick note about today's episode. It was actually recorded last spring. We planned to bring the crime scene back last year, and life got in the way, (laughs) and our other shows got in the way. So I wanted to let you know this interview was from last spring. However, our interview with Kit Shalal on his book, Dead in the Water, is no less interesting. I think you really enjoy it, and here it is. The crimes, the criminals, why did they do it? Who got hurt? Did they meet justice or commit the perfect crime? You'll find all the clues at Jim Harold's Crime Scene. Welcome to the program. I'm Jim Harold. So glad to be with you. When you think about crime, uh, most of the time, the, the, the mind goes to things like murder or some kind of grand art theft or something like that. But very rarely do we think about something like shipping. But shipping plays such a key role in our life, the shipping of goods and so forth, as we're finding with the global supply chain. And uh, true crime has come to meet uh, maritime uh, reality. And uh, we're going to talk about a very interesting case today uh, about the Brillante Virtuoso. And our guest is the author of a new book, the co-author of a new book about the subject. It's called Dead in the Water, a true story of hijacking, murder, and a global maritime conspiracy. Kit Shalel is on the phone with us, or through Zoom, and uh, he is the co-author. He is a reporter at Bloomberg and a writer for Bloomberg Businessweek magazine. He's won numerous international prizes for his work covering everything from Chinese state hackers and feuding hedge funds to shady Nigerian oil deals and Irish sectarian gangsters. Uh, Kit, thank you for joining us today. Hey, Jim. Thanks so much for having me. So um, you start off the book in a very interesting way. You kind of reiterate how important shipping is to our modern life and how it's almost invisible. I think to kind of set the stage, it'd be interesting to get your thoughts on that because really it, it kind of impacts everything in our daily lives. Yeah, that's that's a good point. Um, I think some people, myself included, really, before I started on this book, have the idea that because we live in a digital age, because we're all connected remotely, that the economy is no longer reliant on the old nuts and bolts as it used to be. But the fact is, we're probably more reliant on ships than we ever have been at any point in our history. The flow of goods between Asia in particularly in particular, and Europe and the US, is enormous. And my my co-writer, Matt, always says, whatever room you're sitting in, look around it right now. Look at all the things you can see within touching distance. A desk, a computer, a cup, a pen, a notepad. There's a good chance that uh, if those things weren't made in Asia, at least some of the components for them were made in Asia. Sure. And still, the best way to get them to the markets that they need to get to is by by ship. Um, the difference these days is that ships are vastly bigger than they've ever been before, the size of floating towns. Um, and the value of what they carry is is also has increased hugely. Uh, a big container ship these days might be carrying a billion dollars worth of cargo on board, which is insane to think about. Now... When you talk about the business of shipping, it, it seems to be a bit of a labyrinth. You can't even tell, based on some of your writing I was uh, reading before, you can't even tell ultimately sometimes who owns a boat. And it seems like it's almost intentionally made that way. Is that true? 
That's true. It's it's crazy to think about that you can have a vessel at sea worth maybe a hundred, two hundred billion dollars, carrying a billion dollars worth of cargo, and for the the financial institutions that support that voyage not to know who ultimately owns it. But that's the reality of modern shipping. It's just evolved into this crazy offshore netherworld um, where it's really easy for the financial beneficiaries uh, of shipping just to hide themselves out of sight, making tons of money, living the sort of lifestyle of a, a James Bond villain uh, <laughs> in hotels and on expensive yachts, but free from all scrutiny and importantly, free from all responsibility if something goes wrong. So let me ask you this. I think the average person would think something like this. Well, that has to be regulated somehow, but it doesn't seem like that's the case. Why Why is there such a, uh, a dearth of, of regulation in those types of things? Well, the, sim- the simplest answer for that really is that regulators can only operate within a given jurisdiction. Uh, and so the jurisdiction of the, whichever government has decided it wants to regulate its activity only extends a few miles offshore. And then in the open ocean, a different set of rules apply. Um, and it's not subject to the rules or the whims of any particular nation. Um, now, add to that the fact that if you're on a big tanker out in the middle of the ocean, you might be 500 miles away from another living soul. Um, there's no one watching. There's no, there's no international sea police who are going to come and raid your boat, haul you off to sea prison. It just doesn't exist. That's not how the world works. Uh, countries have a big enough, uh, have a hard enough time enforcing law and order within their own borders without being sort of the global police of the ocean as well. So, I mean, that's why historically the sea has always been a, been a great refuge for, for criminals of all stripes, going way back to, you know, to, to the original pirates and smugglers and um, and mutineers. Uh, it's It just it hides all manner of sins. Your story is about the, the Brillante Virtuoso and what happened to it and who was involved in, in, in the aftermath. How did you get on to this story? I know you've done things on Brexit and hedge funds and a, a, a lot of award-winning work. Why did you and how did you decide to uh, tackle this? I think my, my philosophy for, for, for journalism is I'm looking for things that I don't understand. I'm, I always look for puzzles. Whenever I, whenever I come across something, whether it's in a newspaper or someone tells me about it in a meeting or I'm in a conference, and I encounter something that just leaves me scratching my head. It, it always gets my attention. And so uh, for this story, I was at a, a really boring uh, corporate conference in the city of London and kind of nodding off in, in the back row, doodling on my notepad. And then this speaker came from, from a local police force and gave a presentation about transnational crime. And one of the examples they used to illustrate how, how international crime has become was this attack on an oil tanker. And I'll, I'll never forget, they brought up an image, a photograph that was taken of the Brillante Virtuoso, uh, which showed this giant oil tanker kind of adrift, just just blowing clouds of black smoke into the sky. It was such a dramatic image. Uh, and then the, the, the presenter said, uh, oh yes, and there's been a murder attached to this case that we've linked back to a Middle Eastern crime group, um, but I'm not, I'm, I'm not gonna tell you any more about it. Um, 
So I sort of, my ears pricked up and it didn't take me much Googling really, just the basic details I was given to find out that the ship in the picture was the Brillante Virtuoso. But at that moment, there was just a huge amount that wasn't known about the ship. There was no suggestion of sort of of who had burned it or why. Um, There was no, no one was really saying whether the death of this individual who'd, who'd lost his life was linked to the attack on the ship. So it was a classic case of, you know, this dramatic incident uh, a puzzling criminal conspiracy. I didn't have any of the answers I wanted. And so I hooked up with Matthew Campbell, my colleague, and we thought, you know, this would be a good way to spend a few months trying to find out. So the the ship is ostensibly attacked by, uh, attacked by essentially Somali pirates. That was the, the beginning story, correct? Yeah. Have you ever seen the film Captain Phillips? Yeah, I was thinking of exactly that. I just didn't want to say it. I thought it was too on the nose. <laughs> <laughs> um. It's a great movie. Actually, it does a really good job of, of portraying Somali piracy as it was then, um, how things worked. This was, this was 2011. Uh, it was kind of the peak of Somali piracy, and uh, the vessels were being attacked coming through that area about once every two or three days. Um, it was a huge problem, not just for the, for the region, but for, for global trade. I mean, all the things we talked about at the start of our conversation you know, they have to pass through the Suez Canal. To pass the Suez Canal, you have to pass through the Gulf of Aden, which at the time was crawling with Somalian pirates. So it was a major issue. Um, and when the Brillante Virtuoso was attacked and set on fire, naturally everyone blamed Somalian piracy. That was just what was happening in the area at the time. Um, the initial press report said it was pirates. The ship owner blamed pirates. There was some reporting that rocket-propelled grenades had been fired that had and that was what caused the inferno. But at the same time, it was kind of it was unusual from the point of view of how Somali pirates actually operate. The attack took place in the middle of the night, and Somalian pirates just don't do that. They, you know, they it's really difficult to board a gigantic tanker from a tiny skiff in choppy seas. Uh, it takes some doing. You don't want to be doing it after dark. Um, and also, if you're a Somali pirate, once you once you seize your prize, they boarded the Brillante Virtuoso, which is carrying a million barrels of oil. Um, you don't just give that prize up for nothing. You know, the whole reason piracy pays is that all the people invested in the voyage of a ship like the Brillante Virtuoso are gonna are gonna pay significant sums to keep things moving. Sure. But the, but these pirates, these alleged pirates, they boarded the ship, they started a fire, and they left without any any ransom demand. So from the start it looked odd. So, um, the idea that these pirates boarded in the middle of the night, which you said itself was uh, a bad idea, but isn't there the thought that they had some inside cooperation? Yeah, uh, so they they definitely had some cooperation because um, even in the, the immediate aftermath of the attack, it was clear that the crew had actually let them come on board. Um, this, this little ship, this little boat approaches in the middle of the night. But for some reason, the Filipino crew let them board and let them aboard. And, and once, they, once the raiders are on the ship, they start waving their, their AK-47s around uh, and things start to go south. But yeah, obviously uh, very unusual for, for, for random unidentified mask-wearing people on a small boat to be permitted to, to, um, to board a vessel in the in the Gulf of Aden, it's a really bad idea. 
and it straight away attracted suspicion. If you go back to all the president's men, they talk about follow the money. If it wasn't pirates, who would profit from this huge oil tanker being destroyed? Yeah, that's that's sort of the key question that we try and answer in, in Dead in the Water. And, um, you know, at, at its simplest level, um, there's a long history of ship owners deliberately destroying their ships. Now, this goes back 3,000 years or more. Excuse me. It's one of it's one of the oldest financial frauds in existence, and the simple reason it pays is that um, ships are very valuable things. Uh, they are normally protected by some sort of financial protection, and they're also kind of expensive to dispose of. If you've got one, you don't need any more. Um, you, you know, you have to. It's quite difficult to to find a place to dispose of that ship safely. So the simplest and most profitable option over, over the, the past centuries has been just to sink them or let them sink or run them aground or run them into cliffs or, or even sail them into a storm. Um, and this has been going on an awfully, an awfully long time. There's a name for it. It's called scuttling, um, which is the name of the, the little window on the side of a vessel that you, you can open and let all the water in. It just sinks like a stone. Um, now, what's happened in the modern age is that ships have become ever more valuable and they're protected by these incredibly lucrative insurance contracts. Um, a- any ship on the ocean today, it's not going to be allowed to undertake a voyage without the protection of insurance. So the ship itself will be insured, and its cargo will be insured as well. And those contracts run into the hundreds of billions of dollars if something goes wrong. So if you put yourself in the shoes of a, someone who runs a shipping business, let's say you've got 20 vessels um, 18 of them are in good working order, but two of them are, are a bit old and rusty and they leak and they're expensive to run uh, and you're losing money on every voyage that you do with one of those ships. Well, what do you do? I mean, one one option you have is to is to take it to a, a regulated shipbreaking yard and have it torn up for scrap. Um, yeah, you could do that. That's one way of doing it. You wouldn't make much money doing it. It might even cost you money to do it properly. Um, or you could arrange for an accident. And in that instance, you'll get the full insured value of the ship. The ship will likely be insured for maybe five or six times its actual value or the scrap value. So you take your two old ships and you arrange for them to get into difficulty and you get to walk away from your problem with tens of millions of dollars that you wouldn't have otherwise had. Fascinating info from Kit Shalal on his book, Dead in the Water. We'll be back right after this. Thanks for listening to Jim Harold's Crime Scene. We're so glad to be back. Please make sure to follow the show and the podcast app of your choice so you never miss an episode. Also, please share the show with your friends who are fascinated by true crime the way we are. Maybe even text them a link to this episode. Finally, be sure to rate and review the show in your favorite podcast app. Thanks for your help and for listening. Be careful out there. And now back to Jim Harold's Crime Scene. We're back with Kit Shalal. We're talking about his book, Dead in the Water. It's interesting because there used to be the old saying, smoking may be hazardous to your health. Investigating this case may be hazardous to your health, correct? That's right, yeah. I, I, what The things we're talking about here, which is sort of 
high-level financial maritime fraud. It, it, this is this is a secret criminal underworld, and they don't attract the same sort of media attention as their equivalents in the big cities. You know, they they're not like the mafia or you know the triad gangs. They are much more secretive, much more international, uh, and they like it that way because they can they can they can make vast sums of money. Uh, with no one knowing about it, and no one ever hears about it, so they, you know, like all organised crime uh, groups, they're intensely secretive. Um, and so, once you delve into this world, you'll find not only that there are extremely dangerous people involved in it, but also they have a lot to lose. The sums, the sums of money we're talking about here are enormous. Uh, even even if you if you look at it from the point of view of the international economy. Uh, there's, there's potentially huge profits being made, but that relies on secrecy. So anyone who comes along and interferes in this in this business, um, they're going to have a problem. And it, it, as is the case where we were talking to people for this book, we found we found out that some of the legal team who investigated this this casualty of the Brillante Virtuoso had been threatened. One of them had been badly beaten uh, on the streets of Greece. Um, there was a guy who had to be evacuated from Greece with an armed guard because his life was in danger. Um, and of course, um, at least one murder and maybe two murders, uh, you know, that you could trace back to this one ship. As a journalist, and I guess this is a global question, not only for this story, but any story, you think about a war correspondent, and we're seeing it now in Ukraine, where people go and they literally lose their lives. As a journalist... How do you feel about danger when you're investigating a case that may have some people who don't want you investigating it? I I always think that uh, as a journalist, you're you're you tend to be much safer than the people people you're talking to. Um, you know, I, I'm I'm based in London, Matt's based in Singapore, both both safe jurisdictions. Um, journalists, jur- journalists are, are pretty well respected and protected in both those places. Of course, if you're a war correspondent in Ukraine, that, that's real bravery. That's something sure. else altogether. But doing an investigation like this, um, yeah, I, I, I've, I've never been personally threatened or, or even felt really particularly threatened. I, I guess it, on, at the back of your mind, you're thinking, there's been a couple of times when I've had to reach out for comment from people. Uh, as part of the job, you have to give people their rights to reply. And you and you, you you find a way to contact them. Sometimes, if they're underworldly sort of people, it's quite hard to get hold of them. It takes a few months, and then you find them. You're putting allegations to them, and you're thinking in the back of your mind, ah, this person might might well be a criminal. <laughs> they might well be capable of getting me killed if they were. So it, it does linger there. But I think the real risk in this story was to the people we're talking to. They they really did put themselves on the line for the truth to get out. And for a story like this, this had to be an incredible long-term undertaking. Can you talk about kind of the, the breadth and the depth of your work uh, with your co-author and how long it took and, and how how much you had to do? Because it seems like a huge undertaking. Oh, I just want to say one more thing about danger. I, sure. The, the, the biggest ob- obstacles that we faced doing this book weren't from, from the criminal underclass. You know, the biggest obstacles we faced were from the British police force, from mm. the insurance industry in London. They were determined that we don't dig into what happened on the Brillante Virtuoso to the point where the British police summoned me and Matt 
to um, to a police station uh, and told us they were going to try and get a court order to stop us writing about it. Interesting. Um, very bizarre. But the, the, this atmosphere of secrecy, that, that was much more of a problem from an official point of view than it was for Matt and I worrying about, um, you know, potential repercussions for us. Um, in terms of the book, the book's been a sort of a, a five a five year project, really. I think we first got involved in this uh, way back in 2016, and it's it's uh, revealed itself very very slowly um, over the course of maybe 150 or 200 interviews, thousands upon thousands of pages of documents that we've obtained either through legal proceedings or just through sources who, are, who want to cooperate and be helpful. Um, all that material, you know, it really wasn't until quite recently that we we felt like we had the full understanding of what happened to this shit and what it meant. When you look at something like this, it involves such vast sums and, and, and the labyrinth that we talked about and so many people and power players and so forth. But sometimes in the mix gets lost the human factor and the human toll. And there was one person, at least we know, who, it, well, we we theorize, I think, that that uh, was the human toll. And I'm talking about David Mockett. Could you talk about him, who he was, and uh, what happened to him? David Mockett uh, is the tragedy of this story, really. He was... Uh, a marine expert surveyor who was living in Yemen at the time. He was closest to the scene when, when the ship was attacked. And, you know, all the insurers and bankers needed someone to get aboard the vessel right away after it was burned to see what they were dealing with. And he was the best qualified man for the job. And he was, a, you know, this incredible larger-than-life character, um, you know, six foot four. They called him the tallest man in Yemen. Everyone knew him. He had a big personality. And he also had a kind of... Um, stubborn integrity. You know, he didn't really tolerate corruption. He didn't like being told what to do. He, he saw his job as just to, just to see it, just to call it as he saw it uh, and rely on the evidence and, and give a reliable report back to the people who'd employed him. So he went aboard the Brillante Virtuoso and he sent back some evidence to London saying, this doesn't look like a pirate attack. It's this, there's something wrong here. And only a few days later, tragically, he was, he was assassinated. He was blown up by a car bomb. Um, it, you know, it, and it was the kind of bomb that really isn't used by by terror groups or or, or anything like that. This was a targeted um, explosive device under the car seats uh, of his Lexus, and it didn't even injure anyone else in the vicinity. It, it was clearly meant just for him, which is subsequently what the British authorities found had happened. And you know, of course, one of the themes of the book that we explore is whether David Mockett was killed because of his work on the Berlante Virtuoso? And if so, you know, how do you link those two events together? What does it mean? Interesting. When looking into this, I mean, I'm sure there were several things, but what, what surprised you? What shocked you? What did you, you learn that you weren't expecting? Uh, I mean, all of it, to be honest, it's, <laughs> I, I think, like most people, I you know, I, I when I'm when I'm on the beach and I look out at sea and I see these hulking shapes on the horizon, I, I sort of, 
imagine this orderly world where where things just get transported around without any problem. Um, and then, of course, if you go to any of the modern ports these days, you know some of the ones you've got in the United States, and you see what's happening. It's like this incredible choreographed dance where machines are just loading gigantic containers uh, on and off ships at the rate of one every sort of ten minutes or so. And I just had a different imagining of the way shipping works now. I thought it was different. I thought um, all the old sort of maritime yarns about piracy and smuggling and mutineers, I thought that was consigned to history. And I, I just had no idea that there was this, this criminal network on the fringes and how dangerous it is for sailors still um, to, to, to run up against this. Um, so, so learning the specific history of organized crime as it relates to the ocean was, was, was extremely interesting and, uh, yeah, full of surprises. I, th- I think you mentioned that the insurance companies really were loath to pursue this. They, they didn't really want this delved uh, into any further, but it, does, it seems kind of counterintuitive to a layperson. You know, let's say that there's a home or a business, small business, and arson is suspected. Typically, an insurance company would be at the front of the line saying, hey, let's see what happened here. We don't have to pay out this claim if somebody set the place on fire intentionally. Why would that be different for something, even if it's on a much, much larger scale? This is one of the, the many mysteries of the, of the insurance market. Uh, it's a strange fact. I, I, you know, based on my encounters with them and my reporting for this book, I think you probably have a harder time getting an insurance company to pay out your bathroom floods than you would if your ship gets blown up. Um, I'm not quite sure why that's the case. Uh, and uh, at the top level, when we're talking about maritime insurance and we're talking about you know $100 billion on a ship, you would think that they are highly incentivized to call out fraud whenever it happens. But it doesn't, it doesn't happen that way. Most maritime frauds go uninvestigated and unpunished these days. And the insurance industry is one reason why that happens. I guess the simplest way to understand it is that insurers themselves actually rarely have to cover the costs of a rising number of accidents or, 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 or disasters. They just raise their prices. The market has evolved very efficiently to pass the costs of earthquakes or typhoons or hurricanes or sinkings onto to their customers. And in actual fact, the more dangerous the ocean is, the better it is for, for the insurance market because the more likely ship owners are to need different types of insurance from them and the more they can charge for it. It's kind of like antivirus companies uh, that, uh, that, that kind of like the idea of viruses because it gives them a reason for being. Exactly. Um, it, and it, then so, so they can just, there's, there's also the flip side of that is that it's really problematic for them to actually accuse a, cu- a big customer of fraud. Um, it's reputationally damaging. They want to be seen as reliable protectors of, of the shipping industry. When a problem happens, they want to be seen as the good guys you turn to to help you and, and to pay up. So if you get into a situation of conflict with a customer where you're accusing them of things, it doesn't look great. Um, and there's also the practical matter of crime at sea is incredibly difficult to prove, always has been. There are rarely any witnesses. A lot of the evidence is either lost to the bottom of the ocean or destroyed. And you know, the only people who witness going on what's going on these days might be 
terrified Filipino sailors or Bangladeshi sailors who don't really have any incentive to speak out and would put themselves at danger if they did. So it's, a, it's an enormous undertaking to, to solve a, a marine fraud these days. It costs a lot of money. And the gain is kind of uncertain, even if you manage to spend a couple of years gathering evidence, um, hiring private investigators and lawyers, you might still lose your case. So, you know, for quite practical reasons, many insurers just decide when they see a case that they think is suspicious, they just settle it. They'll pay half or a third of the amount um, and they just make it go away quietly. But the unfortunate consequence of that is that it does encourage the criminals to keep doing what they're doing. You know, it reminds me of something, and it's a totally different situation, but it reminds me of the difference between uh, the guy who gets a gun, uh, maybe 18-year-old kid, walks into a liquor store and knocks it off and, and gets $57.24 and then spends 20 years in prison, as opposed to the financial advisor who swindles uh, little old ladies out of millions and then gets uh, five years in minimum security and uh, community service. <laughs> kind of that inequity, it's, it's reminiscent. We see it uh, in really not just, you know, capitalism, but all systems. We see that uh, there's kind of two sets of rules almost. That's a, that's a fair point. I think that's actually a fair comparison. And it sort of speaks to the failure of the global community to face up to the most serious crime. Um, police forces are, you know, find it a lot easier to deal with simple, low value, um, easy to solve acts of criminality and really difficult to go after the big guys. Uh, you know, of course, in the United States, you have the FBI. The FBI has a, has a fearsome reputation internationally, but, um, that's not true of the British police. <laughs> There's no, they're not quaking in terror at the activities of the Metropolitan Police over in Piraeus or in Yemen. Um, and the way, the way organized criminality works now is just like the rest of the economy, it's become so interconnected and global. There's no limit to where they can operate and how they can operate. Money can cross oceans and borders so easily. Um, these criminal groups can connect with, in loosely affiliations with with similar groups in South America or North America or Canada. And all of that makes the job of the police really, really difficult. So I have some sympathy, but yeah, it's, it's, a, it's fair to say that at the, at the top level, the most sophisticated crimes, we're doing a, a bad job of, um, of cracking those. So if we make you the physician here and you can write a prescription, is there a prescription to write to fix at least some of this? Gosh, that's a really hard question. Um, I, I, you know, I have thought about this. I, I don't know if there is a simple one. There are a few things that could happen um, that would make the situation better, in my personal view. Um, I mean, the first thing would be the idea that ships can be owned essentially anonymously is ludicrous. You know, we don't tolerate that sort of thing in the banking sector anymore, even the legal legal community now is having to to do due diligence on their clients i think it should be the same in maritime and insurance circles if you want to write multi-million pound multi-billion dollar commercial contracts with a ship owner or a ship agent or a ship manager you should know who you're dealing with and you should check they're not a criminal i think that's just that's that's just basic compliance and you know the shipping world is some way behind the rest of the world on that front um 
I also think that that law enforcement have a role to play here. You know that there must be a better way to pursue these types of crimes than what we're doing at the minute, which is to throw our hands up and say it's too hard. We don't have jurisdiction. There's nothing we can do. You know there are things you can do, and you only have to look at um, the bombing of the USS Cole in Yemen way back in I think it was the year two thousand or mm-hmm. two thousand and one. Uh, some Al Qaeda militants drove a small boat at a, at, a, at a big U.S. naval ship and detonated a bomb that that killed a bunch of American sailors. And um, the FBI sent a, sent a squad of people over to to try and unravel the crime. And even though Yemen is one of the hardest places in the world to 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 investigate and to operate in, the FBI did their job. They got some answers. They interviewed people. The U.S. flexed its muscles. And the Yemeni government was forced into a sort of stance of compliance where, you know, there was an at least attempt to get justice. I, I think it is possible. But the attitude in the Berlanti Virtuoso case, I think, has has been, it's just too hard. We can't do anything. Let's just not talk about it and move on. Which, for the for the family of David Mocker, I think is is not satisfactory. I think if it was someone related to me, I'd, I'd feel incredibly angry about that as well. Well, thank goodness that Kitchell and Matthew Campbell did not just let it go, that they pursued this story, Dead in the Water, a true story of hijacking, murder, and a global maritime conspiracy. This is a major release. And uh, Kit, I assume you can get this anywhere online or in bricks and mortar stores that fine books are sold, correct? That's right. You can get it from uh, from Penguin Random House Direct. You can get it on Amazon or you can go into any bookshop, I think, and, and order it there. One last thought or question for you. Um, what do you hope comes out of this book? That's, yeah, that's a tough question as well. I mean, I think fundamentally the job that Matt and I set out to do was to, was to put this out there. Um, from the moment I heard about the ship, I was frustrated that the situation was unknown, that no one knew about it, that, that this man had died and no one knew why. And the world just moved on as if nothing had happened. Now, I think what happened here was horrendous. And I think the, 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 at the start of the reckoning that comes from an event like this is at least understanding it. So I hope the book allows people in the, in the outside world more broadly to, to, to know what happened here and to know what it meant. Uh, beyond that, who knows? But I think the first step has to be understanding what went wrong. Dead in the Water, a true story of hijacking, murder, and a global maritime conspiracy. We've been joined by one of the co-authors, Kit Shalal. Kit, thank you for joining us today. It's been a fascinating conversation. Thanks, Jim. That was great. So much fun doing this show. I really enjoy it. And uh, we've had quite a few people on social media say, Hey, Jim, I am so glad the crime scene is back, or I never knew about the crime scene. I'm really enjoying it. So basically, I'm laying down this challenge to everyone. If you enjoy this show, please share it on your online communities for true crime and with your friends, because this is truly an experiment. Uh, the reason we stopped doing the show last time, frankly, was because we were not getting enough uptake on it. And since we have very limited resources, I'm the only full-time employee of Jim Harold Media. We really have to pick and choose the things that resonate with you. So if we want to keep crime scene going, I need your help, plain and simple. And it doesn't cost any money. It's just basically 
spread the word out there and let people know about it because I love doing this show. And the main reason I brought it out back was because I missed it. Um, I think it's a fascinating topic, and it's nice to do something different than the paranormal and the supernatural, which I absolutely love, and uh, that has not changed one bit. But it's nice to do something else, to have a little bit of a change. And this is an area where, frankly, I think I do a pretty good job, and I do something different than what's out there. So, uh, not to pat my back too much, (laughs) but... Basically, I think we do a good job. I hope that this show can, this time around, find its audience and you guys can help us. So thanks so much. I appreciate it. We will talk to you next time. And as always, stay safe out there. Bye-bye.